Let's begin it with a word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you now and ask for your blessing and your help as we seek to be instructed in the faith, as we seek to understand what your word says, what your word tells us, and especially, Lord, as we think about uh, what our role is as citizens of your kingdom and living in this world. Help us, Lord, to be shaped by your word and, Lord, to be encouraged, we pray, uh, as those who live in the culture, that we might be salt and light in a proper way, and, Lord, that we might bring you honor in our vocations and everything we do. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as I, I announced, uh, we're going to do uh, about four weeks on Christianity and culture. That's an important topic for, uh, for every Christian because uh, no matter what we might think about culture or not think about culture, we're engaged as Christians in this very question. Uh, as one writer said, if you're a serious Christian, you probably think about the Christianity and culture question on a regular basis, whether you realize it or not. Every time you reflect upon what your faith has to do with your job, your schoolwork, your political views, the books you read or the movies you see, you confront the problem of Christianity and culture. So we want to th listen to what God's Word has to say about this. And uh, over the next few weeks, what I hope to do is uh, give us some categories from Scripture so that we begin to see our, our place as those who are in the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is. Uh, it's a huge question, and it's, it, it also helps us, though, as we begin to explore that question and look at what Scripture has to say, uh, with what passages of, of Scripture apply to our culture today uh, in, a, in a way similar or dissimilar from the way that the Old Testament did uh, to the nation of Israel, uh, what our role is in society, how we can uh, have our own views about things like uh, politics or our, our vocations shaped by Scripture. And so uh, we, in order to, to go through that, we're going we're gonna to spend time in the next few weeks talking about the question of vocation, talking about the question of political views, uh, some things that I know we're probably really excited to explore. But before we get there, we have to first look at the basis, uh, the biblical basis for understanding the, the, the kingdoms in which we live. Uh, this is really important. So we've got to lay the groundwork first. You know, sometimes uh, we want to just dive into the thing that's most exciting to us, right? Um, but we have to first get the foundation down before we begin. And so uh, I hope that this will encourage us as Christians. I hope that we'll be encouraged as we think about our work on a daily basis, uh, our study, our vocations, the way we vote, the way we raise families, the way we help the poor, the way we run businesses, the way we make music or we participate in the arts or watch movies, all of those things, all those cultural activities, uh, and that we will do so thoughtfully and as God-honoring and God-pleasing, uh, or people who seek to make our lives God-pleasing. Um, we have to understand as Christians we're not to withdraw from the culture, uh, but um, also, we're not called to redeem the culture. And so that maybe can launch us into uh, uh, our discussion today. Be before I start laying out the, the biblical theological rationale for the culture Christianity question, which has been one that's 
been difficult for the church throughout the years. Let me start by doing this. Let's make two, two categories. What are we talking about when we're talking about culture, first of all? The world we live in. Excellent. The world we live in. Um, so, the world we live in is culture. We're not just talking about high culture, you know, enjoying uh, uh, the arts done at a very uh, sophisticated level, like classical music. That's what we, might, what we might call high culture. You know, there are things we call pop culture that is more uh, uh, superficial, just there to make money, just there for the day, and then it fades away. Uh, you know, there's always something kind of renewing itself. It was Madonna, then it was Britney Spears, now it's, I don't know who it is, Taylor Swift. Whatever that music is, it's background noise while you're trying on jeans. Um, it's just <laughs> pop culture, and it just, it's kind of like bubble gum. It loses its flavor after about five minutes, and then you move on to the next thing. Um, so there's different levels of culture, but when we're using the, uh, the term culture for this class, we're talking about the world in which we live. Everything. Everything from your work to your car to the sports you like to um, everything in the world. Um, what are we talking about when we talk about Christianity? What is Christianity? How would you define Christianity? I'm serious. What is Christianity? Well, Christianity... Yeah, study of Christ. That's, that's pretty close, I think. It's, it's, uh, Christianity is first and foremost, yeah, it's a message. A message about Jesus Christ. A message to be believed. And then when that message is believed, there will be a mode of behavior that follows. Uh, so we, 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 it is, it's the study of Christ, and then it's not just living like Christ, although that follows, it's first and foremost a message to be believed. But that message is powerful, and it, it brings us into, when we believe it, it brings us into union with Christ and gives us citizenship in his kingdom, and, which is manifested in the church. So there's world on the one side, Church, on the other. The church, you remember, uh, is just that word in Greek, ekklesia, which means called out. And the word in Hebrew, kahal, same thing, assembled, called out. Uh, we'll look at that more in detail, how it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. But uh, as Christians, as those who believe the message of Christ, have been brought into now union with him, we don't do this just individually, but we are part of a church and yet we still live in the world. So this is something we are a part of as we are simultaneously part of this. This is categorized in two different covenants. This is, as we're going to talk about, the covenant of no with Noah, the Noahic covenant. Better way, yeah, because it's not the covenant of Noah, properly speaking. Better way to say it is, yeah, the Noahic covenant, which is for the whole world. And this Christianity is the Abrahamic slash new covenant. 
as Christians, your simultaneous Abrahamic covenant, as we'll talk about, is fulfilled in the new covenant. They, it's one covenant of grace. As a Christian, you are in both of these simultaneously. Um, what, what else do we see? As we're going to talk about in culture, there is the cultural mandate. It goes back to creation, and it's renewed with Noah. That's for all human beings. We'll, talk, we'll look at that in detail. The church, however, has a specific mandate. What's the church's specific mandate given by Christ? The Great Commission. These are not one and the same. This is the, really the fundamental distinction. Are these covenants and these, the Great Commission and the cultural mandate? Now, uh, there's two ways that, the, that our understanding of this can be abused. And throughout church history, you find it being abused. One is, the, is for the church to confuse the Great Commission with the cultural mandate and to say, well, Jesus has told us to go out and to redeem all culture and to make the culture Christian. Um, I challenge anybody to give me one passage where you find the, the G- Jesus or the apostles saying that. It's not there. It's a popular view, but it's not part of the New Testament. When you read the book of Acts, were they out trying to set up new governments? Were they out uh, building hospitals and schools as the church? They didn't do that. They planted churches. So one, one mistake that often is made is when the Great Commission is confused with the cultural mandate and the church thinks its commission is to redeem culture. We're not called to redeem culture. The opposite error, which has been made throughout church history, then is to ignore culture. Uh, Is to say, well, I want to flee the world. And so let's get out of where the world is. Let's go find our, let's go set up Christian ghettos where we can get away from all those bad and nasty people out there. Uh, and, and that's what monasticism is. That's what the Anabaptists did. And you see that ten- you see both tendencies in American evangelicalism. Let the world go its way; it's only getting worse and worse. So we have to we have to see our role as being in the world and yet not of the world. And we have to let Scripture shape us. We ha- and it may make us feel uncomfortable at times. Because it transcends our modern lab- labels. You know, it, it typically, you know, if we're conservative, we hold to all of these tenets over here. If we're more liberal, we hold to all these tenets over here. And we can't take the Bible and try to force it into one or the other, which is what Christians often do. The, the, the scriptures transcend all of that. It transcends it. And there's going to be places where we may find ourselves challenged if we hold to a particular party or a particular, uh, its views, and I think as Christians, we have to be careful to say, well, I'm f- the first party I'm part of is the kingdom of God. And, uh, and that's what I have to go back to again and again and again as I try to function in a way that um, uh, I can love my neighbor in the world, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So we have these two uh, 
two kingdoms, if you will. This is a common kingdom, which believers and unbelievers both belong to. If you have a passport, there is nothing Christian about that. It is common. My passport has, is, you know, is issued by the United States of America. It is not Christian. It's no more Christian than a passport from Syria. It's just, it's common. It's a world in which we live. Um, but baptism has to do with the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes people hear this and they say, what? What are you saying? Are you saying that God only rules over the church and he doesn't rule over this? No, God rules over all. Jesus says, and Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But then the next thing he says is go and baptize and uh, preach the gospel, you know, do church discipline. And then how do the apostles apply that in the book of Acts? They go out and they plant churches. Um, they live in a common world. This has to do with the state. Romans 13. What, is, what, what is government look like in Christianity? Because the Bible talks about it very clearly. What does is, what is Christian government look like? Strictly speaking now. Presbyterianism, right. Elders, deacons, etc. That's the church government. This is common. This is holy. This is secular, which I'm hoping won't become a bad word in our vocabulary anymore. If you have a background in American evangelicalism, this is often used with, you know, kind of a sneer. That's secular. Your car is secular. So get over it. Your food is secular. The only holy food you eat, you ate this morning. The rest of it is secular. This, however, is sacred. And the two aren't mushed together. This is days one through six or two through seven, you know, same thing. This is the Sabbath. This is culture. This is what we call cult. Not cult like, you know, Mormon or Jehovah Witness, but um, cult in the sense of being called out of, from the world. Sectarian is is breaking away from something on illegitimate means. Sectarian just means, like if you had a church that, or if you had people uh, split from a church and say, well, we're going to set up our own rules, that's a schism. It's connected to a schism. No. Sect. Not, yeah, not secular. Secular just, just means common. Your clothes are secular. Even if you have a fish on it, which I would say, which I would say, yeah. Yeah, first of all, where was it made? It was made in China, okay? It's like, this is so silly. Um, now, there is music that we could call sacred. We'll talk about that. That's music to be sung in the assembly. And, and, and 
Now, this does not mean that you're only a Christian on Sunday, and then, when, and then you're a non-Christian when you go on the world. Honestly, I don't know how people come to that conclusion. It baffles my mind, but you've got to deal with it. Um, you're a Christian eight days a week, as the Beatles, a secular song said. Okay? You're a, you are a Christian all the time, even when you go into the world. But our, our job in the world has to be defined by Scripture. And that's what, that's what we're going to look like. We're going to spend a whole Sunday on vocation. We're going to spend a whole... A whole we're going to save politics for last because I know that's what everybody wants. But you can't come to the class unless you come to the other three. <laughs> it's like uh, Revelation. I think people shouldn't be allowed to read the book of Revelation until you've read the whole Old Testament and you have at least a little bit of a grasp on it. And then leave all the rest of it alone. And... Uh, there are some great books on this, which I'll recommend as, I'm, uh, as we're going along that will be helpful. But the books that I recommend, I recommend reading in their entirety, not, not going to the section that you're most interested in. That's like, that's like watching a movie and saying, well, I don't want to watch a whole movie. I just want to see a scene at the end. It's, uh, there, there's no good in that. You've got to listen to the argument from the beginning to the end. And uh, there's been some great books written on, on this, going all the way back to Augustine. When the, when the Roman Empire fell, okay, the, uh, Augustine, uh, people were freaking out, saying Christianity is over, the church has fallen, because they had so identified the church with the world. Uh, and so Augustine writes his famous book, The City of God. And he says there's two cities, the city of man the city of God. And Rome, uh, which was the capital of the world, the capital of the common world, uh, was not to be identified with you know, the capital of the church. Sadly, it hasn't all worked out that way, at least in the Roman Catholic Church, but that was his thesis, essentially. That though the, the, though the uh, city of Rome falls, or we could say, though the United States of America falls, the church continues. The church transcends that. It transcends all geopolitical nations. Um, and it's not identified with one geopolitical nation now because the church owns no land. There's no land that we can look at and say it's holy. You know, yes, we own this land here as a, as a collective body, but we don't claim it as holy. It's regulated, not by Scripture, uh, by the New Testament per se, but by the state. And then we're going to talk about how, yeah, the, the state, you know, it has to conform to what we call natural law or general revelation. And this, we learn from special revelation. The problem, of course, with natural law and general revelation is the problem of sin, is man suppresses the truth. And that's why, that's why we can never find uh, a political system that ultimately works perfectly. Because man suppresses the truth. Um, just as we saw David doing. David's the righteous king. And uh, here he is abusing his power uh, because he, he, even he's regenerate. Anyway, getting ahead of myself a little bit. Um, any questions on this before we proceed? Yeah, Jacob. Well, that's a good question. And... Uh, you know, was the Puritans' goal to try to fight for a, a Christian state? Is that, what, is that your question? Well, yeah, we have to understand the place in church history, uh, what the Puritans were. Why are they called the Puritans, first of all? They were part of the Church of England, which was uh, 
the Protestant state church from the time of the Reformation, going back to Henry VIII and Thomas Cramner, Book of Common Prayer, 39 Articles, then that became, uh, over time, uh, pretty corrupt in its worship, in, its, in some of its theology, in its practices. The Puritans were those people in the church who were trying to purify the church, bringing it, reformers trying to bring a reformed church back to the Reformation. Um, the problem is, and this is connected to your question, in terms of its understanding of church and state, the Church of England is established at a time, you know, at the end of the Middle Ages, when church and state was wed all over Europe. And so the king, the crown, was the head of the church, of the Christian church. Um, still is to this day. I mean, Christ is the head of the church, but then you have the king, the, the, who, who is uh, basically over the church. It's a state church. When, the, when uh, you have persecution of the Puritans, which was persecution by Protestants, this is sometimes amazing if American Christians don't get this, who were the Puritans persecuted by? Not the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was persecuted during the 17th century in England. They were persecuted by other Calvinists who wanted them to conform to uh, practices in worship that the Puritans felt were unbiblical. That's what the whole thing was about. That's why they started coming over to establish new colonies uh, that were free from uh, uh, people like Charles I, uh, uh, Archbishop William Laud, who did all kinds of... It's an interesting time. Anyway, they come over here with this vision that, yeah, um, they want to create a colony that basically... Uh, it, the, the, the colonies were like a new Israel. And a lot of it had to do with their, their eschatological views of post-millennialism. And they, they thought things were getting better and better. The Roman Catholic Church was falling all over Europe. And uh, that view prevailed in American history until World War I, which is when the war that was supposed to end all wars didn't. And people switched from a post-millennial view of, well, Christ will return after things get better and better and better, to, well, no, Christ is going to come back because things are getting worse and worse and worse. Um, Augustine was an amillennial, held in neither of those views. I would argue he held the biblical view, and he, he writes this uh, book of the, the city of God and the two cities. Um, Jake, you're new to the church, you'll, you'll, others will tell you when you ask me a question, you usually get a long answer. And, uh, and that's because there's, there's just no fast food answers to these things. What does the Bible say to baptize children? You got an hour? You know, that's how it works. You can't just uh, click and swipe. Not that you were saying that. Uh, but. So the Puritans, yeah, they have a view, and that's been embedded into uh, the American psyche, the American church, um, that this is, we have favored nation status. And we've lived that way for a long time. And the Puritans also, as much as I love them, many of them, although it's a wide variety of Puritans, I like the better ones, like John Owen, um, they often confused uh, Israel with America. And so a, a promise that was given to the nation of Israel, if my people will hear my voice, pray, and repent, I will hear them and, and, and heal their land, 2 Chronicles 7.14. Uh, 
had to do with the nation, the geopolitical nation of Israel that was in a Mosaic covenant, a covenant that was made at Mount Sinai with Moses. The Continental Congress and George Washington and John Adams were not at Mount Sinai. They came much later. <laughs> and, and this is something that often gets confused in the minds of Americans. And, uh, and, and we wonder, well, how could they get that so wrong? Well, this is what historical theology is all about. This is why we do whole studies and PhDs and theses and dissertations on all these different guys to learn their views and how did they get these ideas. And a lot of it was cultural. Anyway. View? Sure. There's all kinds of, like, so if you came to the eschatology conference, you know, there's preterism, uh, which tries to put all of Matthew 24 into the past. That's usually held by people who hold a post-millennialism who want to believe that their work that they do um, Monday through Saturday is redeeming the culture. And things are going to get better and better and better and better and better. And then when finally, when the whole world has become Christianized, Jesus will return. And I would argue, well, that's not what the Bible says anywhere. And that's not what Matthew 24 sets up. But then people hear that, hear me say that, and then they'll say, well, so what are you saying? And this is how the pendulum always just swings and we don't think critically. And So what are you saying? We shouldn't care about the, you know, what we do. Are you saying that our works don't matter? No, I'm not saying that at all. Your work in the world matters. And that's why we're going to explore this. We're going to talk about vocation probably next week. Your work in the world you do as unto the Lord, and it must conform to Scripture. But that doesn't mean that you're, you're transforming culture. You're called to be salt and light in culture. We're not to flee the culture, because if we all flee the culture, there's no salt and light. And if we go through the New Testament, there it is. It's everywhere. Do your works, good works before men, so that they may, they may see, let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Be salt and light in a twisted and crooked generation. Sermon on the Mount, Philippians, over and over and over again, we are called to be light in the world, even through our ordinary labor. So your work matters. And you personally sanctify your work before the Lord. And everything you do should be done with, as a witness to the world. And we're not to, to leave and to go set up Christian ghettos anywhere. Because even that, that experiment's been done all over the place, and it doesn't work. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And still doing this, uh, uh, the Great Commission, planting churches like the apostles did. Okay, let's, uh, let's look real quick at some, just in the, uh, for a few minutes, I just want to set up uh, for us the biblical theological scheme of how this plays out. And this might run into next week a little bit, but it all has to do with covenant theology. It really does. Because in the beginning, when God puts Adam in the garden, and, and let me say, everything I'm going to say is connected so closely to the, to the subjects of vocation, the subjects of politics, of uh, our role in culture, etc., etc. Uh, in the beginning, when God makes Adam, he creates a world where the holy and the common are one and the same. There's no separation between com because there's no evil. People aren't dwelling side by side with 
evil, all things are good in the beginning, right? And God gave Adam a commission. So if we have Genesis, if we have our Bibles open, uh, if you turn to Genesis chapter 1, here's the cultural mandate. After he creates man in the beginning, okay, verse 26, and we don't, I'm going to say this again and again and again, we don't want to confuse the Great Commission with the cultural mandate. Everybody does the cultural mandate. Every human does the cultural mandate, including Christians. Only Christians do the Great Commission. It's not one or the other. It's both and for the Christian. And yet they're not the same thing. And it's not, this isn't complicated, but it's really important that we, we get the distinction there. And it'll give us a lot more joy, I think, in our, our daily living. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So one of the things man is called to do is have dominion over creation. Uh, God makes everything in the beginning, you know, light, separates uh, sky from water, uh, makes dry land appear, creates sun, moon, stars, fills the sky and the water with birds, fish, fills animals on the land, and then the last thing, he creates man in his image. Man is the, the crown of his creation, made in, the only thing made in his image. That's why we have more value than our pets. I love my dog. Love him. He's like my, my wife's third son. We had him in a Padres jersey last night. He looked awesome. As much as I love him, he does not have as much value as my neighbor who bugs me who you know, has his music up too loud, who has different views than me, who, you know, he has more value okay, because he's created in the image of God. So what do we find here? All of man created in the image of God is to have dominion over the earth because being created in the image of God means we reflect God at our own creaturely level. And there are three main ways we reflect God. In rule, ruling over creation, in work, as I'm about to show you, because God worked in the beginning, and also in our rest, because God rested on the seventh day. Um, these, these three things are, are fundamental to our uh, reflecting God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, both of equal dignity. Um, you know, gender equality, I know it's such a, been such a hot topic for so long, and... Um, well, the Bible tells us that male and female are equal. They just have different roles, that's all. But they're both made in the image of God. Anyway, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so that's one of the things they're to do. Have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given them every plant for food. On and on it goes. Okay, and then God rests on the seventh day, as we know, and then if you look down to chapter 2, verse 15, this is a very important verse, when people say, where do you get this idea of common and holy? Well, it starts here. Chapter 2, verse 
15, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to abad it and shamar it. Those are the words in Hebrew. Abad means to work, to tend. Uh, shamar means to guard and protect. It's, that's, uh, here I know it says keep. Keep doesn't really get at it, though, because the word shamar, as you see it used all throughout the Old Testament, it always has sort of this military aspect to it of protect. So Adam's job in the beginning is to populate the earth with his wife, to have dominion over the earth, and to work the earth, to be responsible with the earth, and to protect, to protect the earth, to protect the garden. And when people say protect it from what? Well, from any evil that might enter in. We say, well, God didn't make anything evil. Right, but the devil exists. He had fallen before all that. We're about to meet him in the story. So his job is to be a priest, in a sense. A priest would protect what is, what is holy, and the whole garden is holy. Now, it's so common, common and holy is not a distinction right now. All things are good. And if Adam fulfills his job, his requirement of work, guard, populate, name the animals, all the, if, he's, if he is obedient, then eventually, as the story goes on and tells us, he will inherit for himself and for all those whom he represents, as the rest of Scripture tells us, uh, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, that he is a federal head, uh, he will inherit, earn for himself and for all those whom he represents, glory. Glorified life. Glory is the key word. Sometimes when we use the word glorified or glorification, we, we, uh, we have to really highlight the word glory there. Now that's symbolized in the tree of life. That's the goal. Now you know the story. He fails. He fails to obtain that goal. There's the fall. Now those two words that I told you about, abad, work, and guard or keep, shamar, that are both part of his responsibility, okay, they appear again. So you know the story. There's the fall, chapter 3, and in verse 15, there God makes a separation. This is where we see the church coming into existence. Uh, he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between the offspring, between your offspring and her offspring. And so there's a, there's a plural offspring. And now there's a singular offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Two peoples, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is called out, you see, uh, into this uh, particular uh, arrangement with God. This is the beginning of the covenant of grace. And from that seed will come the seed, capital S, Jesus Christ. And he will bruise the serpent's heel and our head, he will crush the head, ultimately destroy him, even though the serpent would bruise his heel, i.e. the cross. Okay, God makes that promise in Genesis 3.15. Adam believes the promise. That's when he names his wife Eve, which means mother of the living. She was not Eve in the garden, but uh, Eve because he responded by faith to God's promise that 
one would come to bring them back to the tree of life. Because now they have death. And the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you have death. And then what did God do? Part of the curse was this. He said, you will work the ground, Adam, uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat them. So this is part of a common curse. And, we, and believers and unbelievers experience that. Believers and unbelievers who are women, who are, who are mothers, have pain in childbirth. We live under a common curse now. But then go down to, keep going, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living, verse 20. And then the Lord God said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God has sent him out from the garden of Eden to abode, to work. So work still is a common part of life. But now, of course, it's cursed, which is why work is difficult even if you work with Christians. It's still difficult. So abad is, still, is now part of the common work to all man. And as the story goes on, we see how believers and unbelievers do that. Okay, Same word. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to abad the ground from which he was taken. It's the same verb back in 2.15. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard, and the word is shamar, the way to the tree of life. So the holy responsibility is now stripped from Adam and from man and given to the angels. And then we're going to see throughout the Old Testament these words appear again and again and again. All people do this. But this work is only given to the church. So, for example, um, later on, I'm getting kind of ahead of myself here, but later on when God makes his covenant with Israel and establishes the priesthood, this verb comes out again and again and again. It's the priest who will shamar the tabernacle, shamar the temple, shamar what is holy. And they had a sword. The Levites were to cut down anyone who came near. Um, they, were, they had the uh, responsibility that the, uh, the angels had that was holy. This is not given. This is not the same sword that is given to the state, which later we'll see was established right here in the beginning, right after the fall with Cain. But this idea of common and holy, it goes all the way back to Adam still having to do this, and all humans, and then there being some holy responsibility that we see reappear in the nation of Israel and then in the church after the coming of Christ. And that holy responsibility, okay, it's not common, today in the church uh, is, would be uh, the sword of the word and the keys of the kingdom, the key, the way, how the way into the kingdom of God is through what? How do you get into the kingdom of God? And how do you get out of the kingdom of God? Where do we find that, Bob Hannibal? You sound very reformed. Because I'm coming across this idea that the kingdom of God goes, 
is found all over the place. But according to the Heidelberg Catechism, the kingdom of God is manifest in the church. The way in is through believing the gospel. The way out is through showing that you don't believe the gospel. So Heidelberg Catechism... Lord's Day 31, what are the keys of the kingdom? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching of gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to each and every believer that as often as he accepts the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all sin. You see, this is, this, is the, this is the Shamar part, opening up. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Next question, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, if anyone, though called a Christian, professes unchristian teachings or lives an unchristian life, if after repeated brotherly counsel he refuses to abandon his errors and wickedness, and if after being reported to the church, that is, to its officers, he fails to respond also to their admonition, such a one the officers exclude from the Christian fellowship by withholding the sacraments from him, and God himself excludes him from the kingdom of Christ." So even if he goes to a Christian school, or even if he works for a parachurch organization, if he's been excommunicated from a church, according to the Reformation and the Word of God, he's outside of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is manifest in the church, in, in, this, in this world. Now there will come a time when the two become one again, when the, king, the common kingdom and the kingdom of God become one, as Revelation says, when Jesus Christ returns. But until then, there is this difference between what is common, cultural, our work, which we participate in as Christians. We'll spend a whole Sunday talking about vocation and how we sanctify that. And the work of the church. To whom has it been given to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments? The state? No, the state has no authority. That's why there's no flag in here. It's not because we're unpatriotic. It's because this is, this is when we meet together as the church, we meet together as the kingdom of God. And I will not step into a pulpit where there is an American flag. Not, on a, not in a worship service. Not unless you put a flag for every country in the whole world in there. That's, and even that I don't like. But that at least gives the explanation that we have keys that open up the kingdom. We're doing this holy work that has not been committed to the state or to any other institution but the church. And this is what you see the apostles doing. And church discipline, the same thing. So you're at the elders of the church, they have authority given to them by the word of God uh, to, to oversee your life, to, to see that uh, the, the sacraments are being administered, to see that the gospel is being preached. Uh, the state does not have that authority. The state, however, has common authority. You know, if I go home and I, and I go 90 miles an hour uh, on the freeway, they have the authority to pull me over and give me a ticket. 
The elders do not have that authority because these are, these are two separate kingdoms, even though we live simultaneously in both. Any questions on this so far? Just laying the foundation. You always have a question. I can always count on you for a question. Right. You get upset about taxes? You're not very sanctified. Yeah, it's not the kingdom of God. The church isn't taxing you. The state's taxing you. So in that, my, my outrage should not be great, or should it be? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a great question. Oh, no, I'm, I'm outraged about taxes. Yeah, I, wh- why would I not be outraged about taxes? I, this is the, I don't understand sometimes the confusion we get. I don't get it. Well, okay, we're going to talk about that. When we talk about the state, okay, but uh, Romans 13 talks about that. Okay, Christians were taxed by the state in the early church, which, by the way, the Roman Empire was far more oppressive, especially in those first three centuries, than anything we experience here in America, by far. Imagine, as I said, okay, the Pantheon is built by taxpayer money, and it's a temple dedicated to pagan gods. Okay, a massive, I'm talking a massive, massive undertaking. Very expensive. All by taxpayer money. Paul says, yeah, okay, pay your taxes. Now, he doesn't say that uh, you're to be happy about it, you know, you're to submit to all things. But we see him in the book of Acts many times taking every legal recourse that he rightly has as a Roman citizen to, within the bounds of the law, change his circumstances. And we can do that. You know, for example, when he's about to get beat, he says, are you going to be a Roman citizen? Because that was illegal. He doesn't say, okay, it's okay, I'm just going to take it, I'm going to let them, I'm going to let them abuse the law that they have instituted and be happy about it. Sure, no, it's good to be, it's, we, as the apostles said many times, you know, they counted it joy to suffer for Christ. But still, if you have every legal right and recourse within the bounds of that common uh, uh, realm in which you live, okay, whatever country it is to which you belong, you have every right to try to change those things legally f- uh, to better your circumstances. I'm talking about change, you know, to, to appeal to the law. So if there is something that we say, well, this is unconstitutional, We have every right to do that as a citizen of the United States, as much as Paul had as a citizen of Rome, to say, you cannot beat me because a Roman citizen cannot be beat that way. And then the centurion said, I didn't know you were a Roman citizen. Now he's scared, remember? So, you know, we're dual citizens. We're dual citizens. Now, that doesn't mean that I I am not acting like a Christian, No, because as we're going to talk about, we should, Christians should be concerned about justice, about, about the state, we, we, should, we should recognize that every ruler, every form of government is going to be flawed and is at some point 
going to let us down and at some point going to flex its authority, even if you had a righteous king. Imagine if you had a righteous king who wrote Psalms. You want a hero? David is a hero. And what did David do? Imagine if we had a king who did the things that David did. We would be so upset about it, right? Um, that's just to show us that there is no righteous leader. And so it's flawed. It's flawed until Christ returns. But that doesn't mean that we just say, ah, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? No, the, and I will just close on this. The concern that we should have living in the common world, in the culture, the concern you should have tomorrow as you go to work should be two things. The glory of God and the love of your neighbor. And those are the two things we should bring with us to the pools. Those are the two things that we should think about every single time in everything we do. The glory of God and the love of our neighbor. And we'll talk about how you know, it conforms to natural law, but again, that gets suppressed by sin. So, All right, we'll stop there. Again, I want you to come back to the four so we can build on this and, um, and see the way Scripture lays this out for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would shape our thoughts and our minds by it. And Lord, that we would see how you have opened up the doors to your eternal kingdom where Christ sits upon the throne over all. We long for that day when he will return and the kingdoms of men shall become the kingdom of God. We look forward to that day. Until then, Lord, help us, we pray, to be active in the world planting churches, of seeking to do missions, seeking to tell people about the eternal kingdom, and also bringing you glory in our daily responsibilities and loving our neighbor. For this we ask in Jesus' name.